The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Irvine. Whoa, a digital music player. Thanks, Mom. Glad you like it. We can finally toss out that old massive stereo. Mom, you can't just throw out electronics. They need to be recycled or donated. Recycled? Like aluminum cans? Yeah, you just go to greenergadgets.org, enter your zip code, and it tells you where the nearest certified recycling center is. Um, I knew that. Okay, Mom. Recycling electronics is as easy as buying them. Log on to greenergadgets.org to find electronics recycling options near you. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I have a very special guest this morning. I read about Dr. Sarah Pressman. She's actually right here at UCI. I read about her in uh, the OC Registers magazine. Uh, there was an article about uh, happiness. And, um, you know, we're all, we all get in a funk from time to time. We have ups and downs, and the trick is to finding our way out of that and keeping our life even keel. So... Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Sarah Pressman. She's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of California, Irvine. Her research focuses on the associations between social relationships, emotions, and physical health, with a focus on the underlying physiological and behavioral processes that might connect positive emotions to well-being. She's published in a variety of well-regarded, peer-reviewed journals like Psychological Science, uh, Psychological Bulletin, Health Psychology, and her work has been featured in top media outlets like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CBS, U.S. News, and many other popular magazines and papers. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show Dr. Sarah Pressman. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for calling in. Of course. I'm very excited. You know, I read about you in the OC Registers magazine, and it really obviously struck a chord because my show, the theme is Get the Funk Out, and I heard you've always had a smile on your face since you were a little girl. (laughs) (laughs) To some extent. I mean, I did receive the Smiling Camper Award when I was 12, Um, but it's actually funny because the year that I got that um, was actually the year that my parents got divorced, and I think that I had actually, even at that young of an age, sort of consciously said, okay, I'm going to smile, I don't care what is going on. And it was already, I think, an early foray into my research. So uh, that, that's definitely amazing. something that started early. So you've always had this great positive outlook on life. Yeah, I mean, you know, we all, we all face, um, you know, our burdens and have bad things happen to us. Um, I, think I, I think I was lucky in that, um, uh, I don't know how much you know this, but a certain amount of uh, your positive emotions and your depression is genetically based. Oh, I um, okay. so go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah, so um, some research has said that, you know, around 40 to 50% of how happy you are actually comes from your genes. Mm-hmm. And so given that, I really just feel like I must have been 
lucky because, you know, we all have our problems and some of us just seem to bounce back from them better. And I will say I have a grandmother who lived to just about a month short of 100, and she is one of the happiest people I ever met. You know, she had oh a lot of gosh. hardship in her life and was just able to really, like I, like I did, I think, smile through it. So she was very inspiring to you. Absolutely, absolutely. I wish I could have told her before she passed away what, you know, what a difference she made. Oh. Yeah. How did you, tell me about your backstory. What did you, uh, growing up, what were some of your interests? Um, as far as research goes, um, <laughs> or, uh, or just in general? <laughs> just in general, that what maybe things that led you to where you are now? Well, I mean, it's funny. When I, when I decided to go to graduate school and, um, you know, be a psychologist and, and do this kind of work, my original interest was much more focused on stress and negative emotions. Um, as an undergraduate, and even I think as a child, um, I, I really did make the realization that um, when we're feeling stressed, or at least for me, when I was feeling stressed, I would get sick really often. And yes. so, you know, the, the sort of stereotypical example is the kid who um, you know, get sick before every test at school or, you know, just the undergraduate students who, you know, get mono or strep throat or right. something like that right before their exams. And I was one of those people. And, you know, I was a good student, so I was convinced that I was not faking this, that mm-hmm. this had to be something real. And so my interest was really in understanding the mind-body connection and how stress could actually damage your immune system. Um, and, you know, surprisingly enough, that, that, surprisingly, that effect is, is very persistent, very well-researched. And I think that, you know, it, it, it's just not, people don't like to believe it as much or, uh, you know, they don't really, uh, you know, maybe because doctors aren't as focused on the mind. Um, it's just not talked about, I think, as much as it was. And so my real interest when I started was in, um, you know, understanding how those processes happened. You know, mm-hmm. how is it that something that is, you know, in your head, like stress can actually damage your um, your immune system or your heart or create cancer or things like that. Well, excuse, um, me, excuse me one second. I have to interject because I know from my own experience, let's say college, you know, college breakup or whatever, I remember getting really sick, like flu, flu-like. So I would think, you know, I'm sure there's been studies where you take different groups who've been through emotional traumas, but my goodness, I think you're so onto it. I mean, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, the surprising thing to me, um, you know, having been in this field now for about 10 years, is how much we know about it, but how much the public doesn't know about it. I mean, you always hear about people saying, oh, you know, my husband doesn't, you know, he thinks I'm crazy, I'm a hypochondriac, but, you know, I'm really sick. Like you said, when, you know, Mm -hmm. when you broke up, um, you know, we know what that kind of pain, that sort of psychological pain does to your brain. We know how that transfers into stress hormones and how the, like, cortisol um, and how those stress hormones in turn can actually turn off your immune system. You know, it's so well pieced out that... I mean, to someone like me, there's no question that that's real, you know, yes. that that's having a real effect on your body. But I think to still the casual person and even some doctors, you know, who really think, you know, medicine is everything and mm-hmm. surgery is everything. They don't pay as much attention to the fact that our mind is doing a lot of the damage as well. Right. Well, they say, I've heard, that a lot of people can avoid surgery by, you know, physical therapy and maybe some counseling because you you can heal your body, you know, right. and we we get also physically we're not quite standing right or sitting right, and you get so cramped up like a pretzel. You you think that maybe the solution is surgery, right? And I mean, obviously, it, it you know there are situations. I mean, I'm not going to say we shouldn't inter- intervene with medicine all the time. Right, right. One of the one of the quotes I always like saying is, um, "So I study how happiness influences your health, but you can't." 
happier way to growing a new kidney if your no, kidney fails. You know, yeah. There's an upper limit on, on what our positive emotions can do for us and what our negative emotions can do. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, there's so many people who, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the big things now is obesity surgery. So, uh, you know, having various kinds of, you know, gastric bypass and things like that. And yes. I mean, I know one of your interests is in, you know, healthy behavior. And sure. obviously, if we could figure out an easy way to get people to exercise, Yes. You know, we could maybe avoid that. But unfortunately, as great as exercise is, we don't do it. You know, it's really hard to get people to change their behavior. Oh, I know. And it's not, people are t- so tough on themselves. It's not an overnight process. As I, right. as I mentioned, you know, I used to be so into junk food years ago, but I was an emotional eater. And I finally figured out in my 20s, um, going through a lot of different changes, relationships, that I am an emotional eater. I got to stop this. I'm eating these things that are so bad for me because it's comforting me. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. There's so much, yeah, there's so much psychology to eating. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that is even apart from, I mean, this is outside of my research area, but, you know, there's certainly lots of interesting research on how what we eat can impact how we feel and, you know, brain neurotransmitters. And I mean, it's true that, you know, as much as sugar is bad for us, it does release endorphins and yes. serotonin and, yes. you know, gives us a little chocolate high that we all love. And yeah, in the long run, it's terrible. But I think you're right. We self-medicate. Yes. Um, and yeah, emotionally eat and, and eat under stress. And again, I mean, the interesting thing I think about stress eating is that, um, you know, there's definitely some physiological processes that are happening that, you know, maybe uh, thousands and thousands of years ago would, would have helped you survive mm-hmm. after a night of not sleeping. You know, there's a reason why, you know, when we don't sleep, we crave fatty foods, high calorie foods that are easy to turn into energy because, well, you didn't you know, have a chance to recharge that night. So let's try to get that somewhere else. But then when you sit at a desk all day and you just had that Big Mac, you know, it's not really doing what it's supposed to be doing in terms of, you know, helping you move and and create that energy. You know, it's interesting. I have these talks with my daughters because I give them oatmeal every morning and orange juice and some toast. And, and, um, you know, I tell them years ago, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I'd get up and I'd have a donut and maybe a hot chocolate on the way into New York. I had to commute to school. And they can't even believe it. And I and I tell them, I said, you know, I put weight on, and I was exhausted, and it was just not. It was terrible, terrible Absolutely. habits. Yeah, and that's what happens with a lot of kids. Like I know they reach for the sugar, and it's convenient for some people to give them that. And you know, here's a muffin. You know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and it's in the vending machines, and it's what's you know easier to grab, and it's what's mm-hmm. in convenience stores, and yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, you know, I, it's interesting. I, um, I I just feel like it's good to make kids aware when they're younger about different things, about eating healthy, not to be over the top so that you're stressing them, but just reading labels and understanding why we reach for that sugar. I know my daughter gets stressed. I get stressed. We reach for chocolate. But just I have conversations about it, you know, like, okay, we got to keep tabs on this. <laughs> yeah, and I think we're not really that good. I mean, I don't have any children myself, but, you know, uh, my understanding with, you know, education programs for younger kids is we're not really teaching them about stress and, you yeah. know, how it affects their body and, like you said, sort of nutrition mm-hmm. and how that might affect how you feel. Um, you know, instead, I think they just learn everything very accidentally from commercials and from whatever their parents believe. And, right. you know, it's always amazing to me. Like, I I mean, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I will say that I, you know, I grew up in a very different environment than, than the U.S. But, um, you know, seeing these protests that parents have had when 
schools try to take cookies out of the schools, you know, oh, or, or, you know, take the junk food out of the vending machines or stop cutting down on, on soft drinks. I mean, these things are killing us. Childhood obesity is an epidemic. We have, you know, more than half of kids now are either overweight or obese. Yes. And parents are still having protests to stop having cookies. You know, we're not starving these children. I mean, this is really about, uh, you know, what's going to be good for them in the long run and have them not have diabetes and all these, you know, really serious um, consequences to their health at a very young age. Right. I think one of the, one of the scariest things that I, I teach health psychology and one of the scariest things that I teach my students these days is that we're starting to see atherosclerosis, which is the, the building up of plaque in arteries, mm. at children who are as young as 12 and 13. <gasps> you know, awful. And, you know, what is going to happen with heart disease for these kids when they're in their 30s? You know, right now, heart disease usually kills you when you're in your, you know, or starts becoming a risk factor in your 50s and 60s. But yes. if you're already getting blockages and you're 12, I mean, you can only imagine what that's going to look like in the you know, near future. So Ugh. that is very frightening to me. That is awful. That is yeah. unbelievable. I can't even imagine blockage in a 12-year-old. Right. right. You know? and, and, but, you know, it's not surprising. I mean, I when you see what, you know, these kids eat. And, right. you know, I think at least now, um, you know, there are a lot of campaigns and public policy starting to be developed to, to help that. Um, but there's, you know, so much resistance, which I, I just find fascinating because you would think that we'd all want our kids to be healthier than us. And instead, you know, what a lot of experts are saying is this is the first generation that's going to live a less long life than their parents. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it's very frightening. You know, I tell the story to my daughters about how when I was growing up in New York, I used to eat a lot of McDonald's, and then I'd let's say I would go to a museum, and I was yawning, and I couldn't even stay awake, and I was irritating my mother because I just wouldn't focus on, you know, what was she was trying to explain to me. And, I, and then I didn't realize, and she didn't realize, it was all that gross food I was you know, ingesting, right. and that it just was affecting me. So um, I explained them that, you know, if you go off and you have a can of soda, you're only kidding yourself because it's just going to affect your body. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So tell me something. Obviously, you've had funks in your lifetime. When did you figure out, you know, how to deal with your own personal funks? I mean, you know, it's funny. I think that everyone assumes that we positive psychologists uh, have all the answers and are walking around <laughs> being happy all the time. And I am a fairly upbeat person, but I think that, you know, I have learned a lot by being in this research field about different strategies that you can take, um, you know, that, that might not cure everything, but might at least help you in the short run to, like you said, to get out of a brief funk. Yes. So um, it can be really simple. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing. So I had a research article that came out earlier this year that got a lot of attention because what we showed is that we made um, people fake smile. And so basically all they had to do um, was hold chopsticks sideways in their mouth in a way that made their cheek muscles activate. And then um, the Duchenne muscles activate, which is basically the the little crinkles and crow's feet around your eye. When you give a sincere smile, your eyes get involved instead of just a fake airplane flight attendant smile where it's just your mouth. And (laughs) what we basically showed is that these people, even though they didn't know they were smiling, when we put them through stress, and it was nasty stress, we made them um, do this really difficult dexterity task where you use your non-dominant hand. Um, So if you're right-handed, you use your left hand. Mm -hmm. You have to trace a picture, but you can't see your hand. It's covered in a box, and okay. then all you can see is a mirror image of it. And if you've ever tried this, they have this at science museums a lot of the time. Um, you know, it's, it's really sounds, impossible sounds because tricky, the mirror yeah. is telling you one thing. You're not used to using your left hand. And then on top of that, we would tell people 
um, uh, you know, the typical person can trace this picture without making any mistakes 10 times in two minutes. Oh, nice. And, yeah, so <laughs> it was horrible to them. And then every time they went off the line, it would buzz at them, and it would also um, tell them, like, how many mistakes. So, oh, you just made a mistake. Oh, you just made a mistake. You've now made 30 mistakes. You've now made 40 mistakes. <laughs> so it was very stressful and very embarrassed. You know, we told them that if they did well, we would give them the chocolate bar, so they thought they were not going to get the chocolate bar. And then once they went through this horrible task, we then made them hold their hands in a bucket of ice water for a minute, which is, if you've ever done that, very nice, painful, Sarah. Um, very horrible. And while they were doing all this, they thought it was a multitasking study. And so they would actually be holding those chopsticks in their mouth in a way that made them either smile or sincerely smile with the <laughs> eye crinkle involvement, too. And what we found is that even if people were going through these horrible experiences, their bodies responded better to the stress. Their heart rate would drop faster following the stress if their face was in a smile than if they were in a more neutral position, which really suggests that something as simple as smiling, even when you're not happy, just forcing this fake smile on your face mm-hmm. can actually reduce the stress you experience. And um, one of the interesting things, it wasn't a very powerful effect, but it was there, is that the people who were in the Duchenne smile, so that big, sincere smile um, condition, mm-hmm. they actually got more happy as their hands were in ice water, which to me is crazy. (laughs) I I mean, it's it's really unbelievable. But, um, you know, one of the things we know about um, emotion and facial expression is that we usually sort of think of it as a one-directional thing. So, um, you know, you feel happy in your brain, and that sends a message to your face, and so you smile. That's what I think most people think about. But the reality of it is the opposite is actually true, and there's something called the facial feedback hypothesis, which basically says, and it's been shown in research, that if you make someone smile, that actually sends a message back to their brain that you're happy. And so you can almost trick your brain into feeling better by putting this big, fake smile on your face, which is very counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of people, but it does seem to work very well. And again, we wouldn't necessarily think, oh, you know, this is going to have any big impact on your life. But, you know, like we talked about earlier, stress is killing people. And if you can find a way you know, even very briefly to sort of break up the stress and then do it a little bit, that that might actually be very helpful. So I think that's actually a very simple strategy that shows that, you know, it doesn't have to be life-changing to get the funk out, like you yes. have to say. Yes, What's interesting is I've, I've lived in different cities, and um, people can be very aggressive when they drive. Yes. You know, New York, Boston. L.A. <laughs> oh, my God. L.A. <laughs> you know, people cut you off. They're swearing at you. Absolutely. I, I mean, I've been with my kids. People are, like, screaming expletives. Not that I'm a lousy driver, but they just come up with, you know, it gets very aggressive. And one time, I just decided to switch it up. Instead of being angry and bring, giving it back out to them, you know, dishing it back out, I decided to be like, hey, have a nice day, (laughs) you know, and my kids were in hysterics. But it just, you know, because somebody seems like such an idiot when they're calling me a jackass. And, you know, it's just crazy. Why why should I come come back out to them with something even worse, you know, and make myself angry? Right. And it's only going to be worse for you because, you know, when you have this anger, it raises your blood pressure, it raises your heart rate, you know, it's putting a strain on you. It's not really helping the other person or making the other person sicker. Right. You know, it's just going to be worse off for you. And I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because that's almost always the example of, of what I suggest this would be best for. Oh, is, you know, it. It's not going to cure your chronic stress. If someone died, you're not going to smile for a month and feel better. But, right. you know, in a, in a driving situation where something that happens in a split second can get you 
so hostile. Yes. That's the perfect example because, you know, why get hostile? Just take a break, trick your body into relaxing, trick your body into thinking you're happy, and it could make a big difference. I know. Um, you know, that is really, I think, an important message is that this doesn't have to be hard and it really can be a simple thing. But, I mean, if you're interested, there's lots of other, um, you know, little little activities that take a little bit more effort than smiling that can also help people when they're feeling depressed, um, you know, or just a little bit, a little bit down. And a big part of it really just involves focusing on the positive as opposed to the negative, like you said, right? And it's yes. hard for us to do it, so you have to really make a conscious effort to, you know, savor these moments. But, um, you know, one of my favorite activities, because it's really easy, is um, to have people write down three things that they're grateful for before they go to bed, which is not that different than, you know, people who are religious who like to pray before bed. It's very similar to that. But basically, you know, just before you go to sleep, you write down, you know, I'm grateful for chocolate ice cream, I'm grateful for my children, and I'm grateful for this really comfortable bed that I like to sleep in. And as simple as that is, and it only takes about a minute to do, what what people have shown is that people who do this have better sleep, not too surprisingly, right? Because instead of going to bed thinking about all the bad things that happened that day and all the things you have to do tomorrow and ruminating, you know, you go to sleep on a positive note, which actually helps you sleep better. I like that. Um, People who have pain conditions report less pain when they do this. They feel happier when they do this and less anxious and less stressed. And so it really is, again, something very simple, very brief, but all you're doing is flipping it so that before you go to bed, you have this positive experience instead of a negative one. And I, I think that's a great little activity. I like that because a lot of times people get very stressed before they're going to sleep. Absolutely. You know, especially Sunday nights, like you're tossing and turning and Monday's coming and you're like, oh, I have all this stuff in my brain. You know, but, and it's not helping anything, right? I mean, it's no. not you're not getting work done at that point, right? <laughs> and so all it's doing is interfering with your sleep, and then that's going to basically disrupt your mood and your energy levels the next day. And so it's really just making things worse. So tell me, we're going to take a quick break in a few minutes, but you also uh, teach some classes, don't you? Right, I teach um, positive psychology frequently. I teach health psychology, which is again about the mind body connection we were talking about earlier. Do you teach to kids as well? Um, no, I, I really, I, I'm a, you know, college professor, so it's okay. mostly 18 and up. Um, right. And I have done some adult education classes as well. So I've actually never tried this with little kids before. Because, you know, they have their own share of stresses with homework and yeah, growing and absolutely. peers and, you know, all the drama that goes on as they're growing. And uh, it be interesting to see because, I mean, I, w- I was looking at a picture of, I think it was your assistant, Holding the chopsticks and smiling. Yeah, I just see the Tara, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, how could you not break up into hysterics holding chopsticks? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think there, there is at this point um, a growing interest in introducing positive psychology to little kids. Um, you know, obviously the big trick is, I'm actually teaching um, this topic today to my students, um, is that, you know, with budget cuts and money cuts, I mean, the last thing that people are going to be interested in is adding a new class. Yes. Um, and so it's tricky. And, and also spending time on things that aren't, you know, literary-based and literacy-based and math-based and science-based. I mean, this is something, you know, that I think a lot of them would sort of see as self-help. But the reality of it is, is the people who have done these programs, so there's um, a program called Strengths Quest. Is which that? is um, done by the Gallup organization. I don't know if you've ever heard of Strengths Finder. It's um, no. It's typically um, a program used in businesses, which basically teaches you what your top five strengths are. So, what are the five things that are 
sort of best about you? Are you a positive person? Are you really good at social relationships? Are you a harmonizer where you can help solve conflict? Are you focused? Do you like learning? So those kinds of things. And so in adults, they teach you the five things that are sort of your best assets and then teach you how to use those in your career. So I think that's great. But what they're doing now is they're doing the same thing with little kids. And so Ah. they have them do these big, long surveys. It's like 150 questions. But then at the end of it, the little kids, they find out, hey, what's special about you? What's really good about you? And then they teach them how to use those strengths to succeed. So, you know, how can I use my leadership skill to, you know, get better grades or be a better um, leader on my sports team? And, you know, how do I use those in times of stress to, you know, make me succeed Very useful. Very, very useful. It's really fantastic. Well, Dr. Sarah Pressman, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. I know we're going to wrap about 9.45 because we've got to run off, but uh, hang tight. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Okay, sounds great. All right. You've been listening to Dr. Sarah Pressman. I'm your host, Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. We'll be back in just a few minutes. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. K-K-U-C-I-I-C-I-C-K-U-C-I. Irvine. Today in school, I learned a lot. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes me. In English, I learned that I'm disgusting. And in physics, I learned that I'm a loser. Today in school, I learned that I'm ugly and useless. And in gym, I learned that I'm pathetic and a joke. In history, I learned that I'm trapped. Today in school, I learned that I have no friends. In English, I learned that I make people sick. And at lunch, I learned that I sit on my own because I smell. In chemistry, I learned that no one In biology, I learned that I'm fat and stupid. And in math, I learned that I'm trash. The only thing I didn't learn in school today... The only thing I didn't learn today... The only thing I didn't learn... Is why no one ever helps. Kids witness bullying every day. They want to help, but they don't know how. Teach them how to stop bullying and be more than a bystander at stopbullying.gov. A message from the Ad Council. Hey. Wake up. You can't dream your way into college. There are actual steps you need to take, steps to go beyond just getting good grades and staying out of trouble. Truth is, there's stuff you could be doing as early as seventh grade to start preparing. So if you're really serious about college, visit knowhowtogo.org. It spells out everything you need, starting with step one, finding an adult who can help. For the rest of the steps, visit knowhowtogo.org today. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. All right, we are back with Dr. Sarah Pressman. I'm your host, Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Hi, Sarah. Hi. So we were talking all about happiness, and I want to find out, how does happiness affect our longevity? Right, so um, that's actually one of the most consistent findings in um, the positive emotion and health research area. There have been, I'd say, about 20 studies at this point, if not more, that have um, typically followed people for really long periods of time. So, you know, they'd find a population of maybe 60 or 70-year-olds, have them fill up some self-reported happiness scale, so how, you know, um, enthusiastic are you, how happy are you, and then they follow them for about 10, 20 years and see you know, who's still alive when they try to find them again. And, you know, these effects are not small. I mean, what they've really shown is that when you look at these healthy older adults, 
that they're living, you know, six, seven, eight years longer if they're more positive to begin with. And so, like you said, I mean, it raises a really interesting question of, you know, how does this happen? Is this just a coincidence? Is this just good genes? I mean, what's going on? And we have a lot of, um, you know, different ideas of, of, of why this might happen. Um, so I think the first really important thing is is the stress thing that we've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stress kills us and, um, you know, in all sorts of nasty ways by damaging our hearts, by damaging our immune systems, increasing your likelihood of things like cancer and, and infectious illness. And so what we really see positive emotion is doing is being the antidote to stress. You know, so like we talked about with the smiling study, um, you know, the smiling by itself is able to really reduce your heart rate after stress and, and really relate, and that um, really helps us sort of not have that damage to our heart if we can have that kind of reaction. Sure. But, you know, on top of that, um, you know, it, it, what we know is that positive emotion can alter your immune system, and so it can lead to a sort of healthier immune system functioning in general. Um, people who are happier have lower stress hormones, and stress hormones are one of the things that damage your immune system when they're at very high levels. Mm-hmm. And also, really importantly, from what we were talking about earlier as well, is that people who have, um, you know, more positive emotions tend to have better health behaviors. Now, there's not as much data on this, but there's definitely some growing research that shows that, you know, if you're happy, you're more likely to exercise, you're more likely to, um, uh, you know, not engage in dangerous behaviors like drug use, or you're less likely to be a smoker, yes. things like that. And those, obviously, we have very clear ideas of, you know, how um, excessive drinking might lead you to have, a you know, poor health and things like that. And then really importantly, too, um, social relationships, having good, close personal ties are one of the biggest predictors of living a long life. So um, there's been a couple of studies that have shown that being socially isolated has as much of an effect on how long you live as being a regular smoker, like a two-pack-a-day smoker. Wow. And, so many and things. What we, sorry? So many factors affect Yeah, yeah. And what we know is that people who are more positive tend to have better relationships. And if you have better relationships, you're more positive, right? Mm-hmm. And we all feel better when we're socially connected, when we're dating someone, when we're married to someone who makes us happy. And so those factors all together, you know, it's really not too surprising that it would make a difference in how long we live. I also find that my own experience as a woman, I feel like women need to make themselves happy before, you know, thinking their relationship's going to make them happy. So a long time ago when I was going through all kinds of crazy changes in my life, exercise became a much more important thing. And I noticed uh, it made me healthier, you know, yeah. and, and in my 20s, I just kind of figured it out, you know. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, researchers have really, really tried to, I mean, I think we, we know this so strongly that, you know, not only do having people exercise, but exercise absolutely makes us feel better. You know, it makes our bodies work more effectively, and it increases all those, like, great endorphins in our, in our body that make us feel more relaxed and less pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we could only figure out the magic cure of how to get people to exercise, I mean, I really do think that it would be a magic cure to many psychological ailments, to many physical ailments. But, you know, as someone who, you know, I think I exercise a little, not every day, but most days, mm-hmm. you know, how do I get myself to even exercise every day? I mean, we're all so busy. It's hard to incorporate this into our lives, but I do think it is one of those magic cures. I mean, humans, we were not, we did not evolve to sit in offices all day. We were walking and wandering around forests and the tundra and, yes. you know, giant fields, like, you know, basically walking all day. And so if we had a life that was more like that, um, you know, I think we'd all be quite a bit better off. 
Oh, I absolutely agree. And you know what? Sometimes you just don't feel like exercising. You're just not motivated. So I think you have to trick yourself, kind of make it fun. I mean, I I tell people I swim. Well, I'm not like an Olympic swimmer. I don't go nuts in the pool, but I might do aerobics and look like a lunatic in the pool, run around and, you know, do all these crazy things. And I mean, I think one of the ways to trick yourself is to buy yourself a dog. You know, there's been a lot Mm -hmm. of things that show that pet owners live longer. And Uh I think that really is probably one of the reasons is that, you know, even if you don't feel like going for a walk, your dog makes you go for a walk. So I think if there's ways to do it. And I love that now there's all these little apps online that um, will try to blackmail you into exercising. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any of no, these. No, I haven't. Um, so there's, there's these various websites where you can donate money. And basically, um, you commit to going to the gym a certain number of days. And if you don't go, it will donate money to your least favorite charity. That is so funny. <laughs> and I think that kind of thing can be very effective, especially if you're not in the habit yet. Yes. You know, you have to, you know, there's a lot of, there's not a hard and fast rule, but a lot of people say, you know, you need to do something regularly for about a month before mm-hmm. it becomes a habit. Sure. So when you're trying to build the habit, those kinds of tricks or rewards, you know, I don't get to have my coffee today unless I go for a run or I don't get to have my chocolate bar unless I go to aerobics. You know, there those things, as silly as they sound, you know, there's a reason why they use reward charts for little kids in school. Yes. I mean, it, these things work. We need them too. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a reward chart on my wall myself. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. What are some of the rewards that you would give to yourself? Um, I have a pen addiction. I really love office supplies. All and right. so I had a Dr. Seuss reward chart on my wall where I had to go for 26 30-minute runs before oh. I was allowed to buy myself a, um, a set of new pens that I really wanted. Oh, funny. And is it, is it working? <laughs> is it working? You doing it? Oh, absolutely. I've been doing, um, you know, one of those couch to 5K run things. I've never been able to run. Even when I was little and you had the equivalent of the president's fitness test where you had to do, you know, the really long runs. Yes. Yeah, I was always terrible at those. And so I'm really trying to teach myself to be a runner by driving myself essentially that's so funny that's so funny <laughs> yes my husband is very supportive of my pen addiction because it's far less expensive than a jewelry addiction that's or true something like that. that's true i you know <laughs> chocolate works for me chocolate is good too and chocolate yeah. actually has uh, you know serotonin benefits so in small amounts dark chocolate is dark, what you should definitely no, go for that's yeah. the only thing for me that's the only good. thing so I know we have to wrap up in a, about five minutes but do people really look at all this that what you're doing is total fluff Sometimes. Um, You know, it's actually kind of interesting because when I teach this to my students, they love positive psychology because I think it's one of the few times in university where they get to focus on what's right about them Mm -hmm. and really think about ways to make themselves happy and find meaning and things like that. Mm -hmm. But in research, you know, I think we're just such cynics that it seems like pop psychology. You know, it seems like the secret and things like that where, you know, maybe it's not as research-based. And and I, I think what that does for me at least, is it makes me um, strive to be a much more strict researcher and really get this research out and do it in the most scientifically valid ways possible so that there is no question that it's happiness and positive emotions that are helping our physiology and, 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 our, um, and our health in the long run. Yes. You know, because it's, it's hard to argue with, you know, showing that someone's blood and immune system and heart is operating differently. You know, how, how do you fix that? I mean, it's, it's, you can't. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about sort of the health ties to positive emotions and not just studying happiness on its own. But, you know, there is a a vibrant, growing field of positive psychology, and there's a lot of excellent researchers 
you know, doing exactly what I think you're interested in, which is, you know, what are these different things that can get us out of these funks, you know? For depression, does it make sense to just focus on relieving the negative symptoms or should we be focusing on more, on how to make people their best and how to make them thrive and how to make them, you know, the best possible person that they can be? And that's not something that we've been doing very well for the last 50 years. You know, we really just focus on helping people get back to neutral. And so I think it's very exciting now to try to scientifically prove that we can do more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything you want to share before we wrap up, website or anything you have coming up? Um, I mean, as far as my website goes, if you feel like reading some very academic articles, you know, <laughs> you can go to my University of California, Irvine website, and it has links to all sorts of different articles that I've written. Um, I mean, I would say that, you know, since we are in Southern California, people who are interested in this topic, there's actually a conference called the International Positive Psychology Association, which is going to be meeting in L.A. in um, the end of June. And so people who are interested in this topic, it's actually, it's not, it is a scientific conference, but this is one of the few meetings I've ever been to where people come just because they want to feel better and they really want to learn about this and figure out how to incorporate positive psychology into their daily lives or into their jobs. You know, the one nice thing about it is almost any business or clinical work or service or education, I mean, even hotels, you know, people can incorporate this, these kinds of topics of happiness into that, their business and really make a difference. And so it's really something for everyone. Absolutely. I actually was talking to my, my girls. We were out, I think it was a restaurant, and they said, wow, everybody is so nice. And you can tell the difference when you walk into one place versus another, the customer service, everybody has a smile on their face. It makes you feel good. Absolutely. And I mean, the really interesting thing from a business perspective is this has been shown to be very cost effective. You know, when you um, look at like airlines like Southwest, where the happiness airline, right, you go Mm -hmm. on and they're telling (laughs) jokes and singing and things like that versus some of the airlines. You know, Southwest is the airline that did probably the best during the recession post 9-11 when all the other airlines were firing people. You know, they made the very positive decision to not fire anyone. And, you know, they ended up surviving and growing and, and making a profit when a lot of the other airlines were shutting down. And so I really, you know, there really is some excellent evidence that it's not a waste of time to focus on this kind of work in in the business marketplace. You know, there's a reason to have happy employees. Well, that's great. So it's the International Positive Psychological Conference. Is that what you said? Um, association. Association. Um, it, it's uh, And so if you if you Google that, you can easily find um, information on it. And it's in downtown L.A. in June. Sounds great. Well, Dr. Sarah Pressman, thank you so much for calling to the show. Great. It was really fun. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much. You too. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Again, that was Dr. Sarah Pressman. If you missed any part of this interview, it will be up on my blog within about an hour. I'm your host, Janine, and in about 15 minutes or so, we'll have Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. Uh, If My blog, by the way, is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And if you want to find out about how to be a guest on my show, it's very easy. You just send me an email to Janine, that's J-A-N-E-A-N-E at K-U-C-I dot org. Have a great week, everybody. Have a happy Monday, and I will see you back here next week. Hey, what's up? This is Angela and Leslie from uh, Slam Dunk. We're from Canada. You're listening to K-U-C-I in Irvine, and we're going through the tubes.